good morning, everyone. Everyone here, okay? Sounds fairly loud. Well, let's start off with a word of prayer, shall we? Lord Jesus, we just want to, again, praise you, God. Um, as we go over these topics, Lord, keep us humble. Uh, let us understand that the reason that we do this is primarily to perhaps bring these people back into the fold, Lord. And if they never were, to get them saved. Um, God, we just don't want to be arrogant or haughty about our knowledge. We always want to keep you at the forefront in our mission, which is definitely to spread your gospel. And just please bless our time in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so welcome to Progressive Christianity Part 2. Um, for those of you, let's see, do I... Some people know me-ish, some don't. Um, some are listening online that I'm aware of that are brand new that don't know me. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Sean Kirk. I've been here at this church a long time, 12 years or so. Um, I have a varied educational past. Uh, one part of my education is from the Talbot School of Theology and from um, Biola, that's the Bible Institute of Los Angeles down in La Mirada, California. And I have a degree in something that's called apologetics. Apologetics means, I don't say I'm sorry for being a Christian, uh, it means that I am giving a defense on why Christianity is true. Um, my particular degree is pretty specialized. You wonder why I don't do that for a living because the only way I'd be able to do that is to teach it at the school which I got the degree from. Found that out later. Um, mine is in philosophical apologetics, so I, I get to do all the weird mind stuff on why it makes sense. But my heart has always been in creation science as well. So, progressive Christianity. Uh, we went over that briefly last week on an introduction to what progressive Christianity is. And I want to talk with you this morning about the left versus the right. Now, this is not a political statement, this is meaning progressives versus conservatives, as far as theology goes. So am I able to just give you a list of names and say, well, there you go. Don't listen to these people anymore. No, I, I can't, really. Why? I can, and I certainly will provide you with some of the worst and some of the, the names that maybe you might not think but are kind of shocked uh, that are leaning towards progressive Christianity. But I want to teach you to recognize it on your own as this pretty much sneaks into the church like a Trojan horse. And I certainly don't have the ability to listen to all the teachers um, that you guys might listen to, so I'm going to miss some folks that I would have never even been aware of. So I believe an understanding in fundamentals and just classical, doctrinally sound Christianity is our best defense against this. So instead of just listing the opposing views of the left versus the right, I want to introduce it with this. Why, why is it that the left lines up with a particular set of views and the right with a different opposing set? You guys ever think about that? I mean, why is it so, the chasm, so far spread between the two, whether it be politically or whether it be theologically? There has to be something deeper underneath it to drive these two opposing forces. But when you think about it in the uh, terms themselves, therein is a hint on why this chasm uh, happens. Progressivism is a term that the left uses to describe itself, and they are progressives, just as the name implies. It's an honorable sounding term to describe the view. 
Conservatives are just that. They're trying to conserve. They are reactionary, going back to the past. The left admires change, almost for change's sake. Any change is presumed to be a good thing, just as long as you're moving forward in the ideology and the thought process. Conservatives want to conserve the past. Why? Because of the wisdom of the ages. When we look at the men and women that have gone before us, we're like, I can't do any better than that. I'm not smarter than Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards or, you know, um, Carson or C.S. Lewis. Like, these are fan fabulous, fantastic champions of the faith that I don't think we can do any better than. Of course, last week we went over in detail five basic warning signs of progressive Christianity. Now, I know I have a listener particularly online that doesn't understand this yet, but you will. Does anyone have any questions on why progressive Christianity is dangerous? If you do have questions on why, you're about to see a YouTube video on exactly why progressive Christianity is dangerous. Um, so if you look on YouTube, for those listening online, you can just go to YouTube and type in a search for uh, Gandalf Staff Prophetic Word with Bill Johnson. Now this is Bethel Redding down in California. And, well, we're going to play the video and then we're going to talk about it a bit, okay? As soon as I find the play button on this thing. That's it. And one of the things that I've learned in the last maybe around 10 years, that apostles have authority to make the decrees and declaration and uh, it's something that God gives and I've seen it work in so many practical ways. Well, Pastor Marlene got a prophetic vision right before this event and she saw us doing a prophetic act that was going to be very, very historic. So thank you for hanging in there and staying with us, but I believe that this is a very crucial time. So why don't you share your vision, then we'll do the apostolic decree. Okay, so I am an artist, I told you this. One of the movies that has really touched my heart is Lord of the Rings. Now, everybody understands, if you know Lord of the Rings, everybody understands what's in my hand. Everybody understands what's in my hand. And during this process, I've been asking God, show me the act. Show me the act. Let me understand what you were saying. And when Pastor Bill started speaking, I saw the Father's heart just opening his arms. Opening his arms. And then when Papa Che came forward, I saw the Christ and the sacrifice he did with the Korean community and with the black community during the LA riots. And then when I heard Ed, Pastor Ed speak, I heard what happened with the Ecclesia. The Ecclesia being the tool of the Holy Spirit, active in the community. And then I heard Pastor, Pastor Terry coming and speaking for the African American community. And I heard myself speak why he asked me to do that. Normally it would only be scriptures, but the Lord told me I needed to repent for the participation I had with the racist spirit in America. So I'm going to ask us right now to all grab a hold of this in our hand. Every single one of us. But from the Father right here, we are going to lift the staff and we will command the spirit not only to leave, but he shall not pass. Now, if you heard what Apostle Savosa said, he said that you need to oil your door. 
So I encourage you, if you haven't done this in the proper order, you must put oil in your door and then go in front and repeat this act with us. That the spirit of racism may leave your house, whether you participated as a victim or as someone who did it. We all did it. For our country to be where it is right now, we all did it. But we will say together, no more, no more, no more. So on the count of three. Oh, I'm sorry. We have to say. Well, two things. I think it's important for you to share the vision of Gandalf, putting the stake down, because that, that... Oh, okay. So for those of you who didn't see the movie, so this happens in the Fellowship. In the Fellowship of the Ring. In the Fellowship of the Ring, at some point, Gandalf stands up, and he is in the middle of this, this tomb type of place and the demon that's been holding court there has has killed everyone pretty much that used to live there it was the dwarves he's killed them all and at when the demon comes after Gandalf even the demons flee the demons flee they start climbing the walls and out of nowhere Gandalf realizes the only thing that will stop this demon is if he stands there and confronts it toe to toe, eye to eye, and tells him this is the line. And the demon is in full authority, in full manifestation of its presence. It's just roaring in front of Gandalf. And Gandalf stands in his authority in front of the demon and says it. The first time he hits it and it doesn't happen. The second time Gandalf does it again and still the demon is not obeying. And at the third time Gandalf puts both of his hands on the staff and he said, I said! And he hits it. And that authority is what we're talking about that can only be released by an apostolic decree. The authority must be given. And that's why I revealed what we heard tonight. So, is that clear? So, please stand up with us. If you can stand, because you're standing in authority, because you're all kings and priests, and all of us, we're an apostolic people. So as an apostolic team with the authority that God's given to us, we decree and declare that racism will end, it's over, in the ecclesia from this night forward, in Jesus' mighty name. Let's lift it up and bang it. <laughs> Hallelujah! Come on, give him a praise order. We did it twice. We need one more. One more. We need you to agree with us. Okay. On the count of three. On three. Shout with us. One, two, three. Thou shalt not pass. In the name of Jesus Christ. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So. What I want to point out is the sad, sad truth of this. This is a real church, people. No, well, real in the sense that it's an actual location, not real as in its followers of Jesus Christ, it's not the Christ of the Bible. There are thousands of people that attend this church down in Redding, California. Thousands that are being led astray by this. Now, we're not going to, today's talk isn't a, you know, a theological rebuttal of what went wrong in that video. There's a lot of what went wrong in that video. But the point is, 
Why is something like that so very popular today? Why? And this isn't just lunatic fringe stuff, right? This isn't just, you know, 110 people in the Branch Davidians. This is thousands of people that either attend there personally um, and, you know, physically down in Reading or listen to them or buy the books or just are somehow influenced by this progressive movement. So, first off, yeah, Margaret. There's a group right in our area that is doing the same thing. I know. I know. And it's and you can see that it just it very much infiltrates uh, churches, it infiltrates societies. So what were they specifically responding to in this? Number one, I gotta ask. So did it work? Is racism dead? <laughs> no. No, it's it's not. Last I checked, we are still in a sin-cursed world. Now, is there a spirit of racism, or is it a byproduct of sin that living in the evil hearts of men? It's a byproduct of a sin-cursed world, right? So what are they responding to, and what was the popular um, tagline at the time that, that they were doing this to end racism? Well, it's when they were talking about implementing critical race theory in our schools and in our workplaces. Now, I know some of you don't know exactly what critical race theory is. I'll, I'll give a brief synopsis. This is not a, a discussion on critical race theory. We will do that eventually, but critical race theory is coming to your public schools if it's not already there and in it, and to your private schools also, by the way. It has even stolen some of your Christian schools and churches. It's coming to your workplace, also if it hasn't already, in the form of inclusion or diversity training. And generally it's not optional, it's either school or on the job or you lose both. See, the indoctrination rapidly penetrating all levels of society is indeed controversial, contentious and divisive, aggressively pitting one group of people against another. And it's also thoroughly political, with the current federal government championing. Uh, CRT or critical race theory, and they are legislatively backing it as well. So what's the attraction? The attraction of critical race theory for people of conscience is to emphasis on social justice as an answer to racism. However, those of you that were around or those of you that are students of history, this critical race theory is not your parents or your grandparents' civil rights movement. It is far different and far insidious. And Dr. King's celebrated I Have a Dream speech delivered from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963, he envisioned a nation where people, quote, will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. See, this famous line reflected a common sense liberal in the best sense, not as what we're talking about today, and biblical ethical principle, the most important element uniting every single human being more significant than any differences that divide us. That was Dr. King's ideal. And it has nothing to do with any incidental physical characteristic. What ought to unite us is our shared and noble humanity, not merely colors or different levels of melanin in our skin. Now is the time, Dr. King said, to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Martin Luther King based his dream, his vision of a just America for every human being on the reality that we are all brothers and sisters fashioned in the image of God, period. Frederick Douglass, the eminent 19th century black abolitionist, wrote these words to his former slave master in September of 1848. Yes, this was the man who had owned Frederick Douglass, and he wrote this to him. 
I entertain no malice toward you personally. There is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine, and there is nothing in my house which you might need for your comfort, which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. I am your fellow man, but I am not your slave. Amen. See, this type of divisiveness, what it's actually creating, this here is truly hate speech. Why is it hate speech? Well, love in the Bible is defined in biblical terms as putting the needs of others first. But love in 21st century thought means accepting or embracing whatever a person wants you to accept and embrace. They are not the same thing, folks. And the core message of progressive Christianity is social justice. Not civil rights like Dr. King preached, but social justice as in what's going on today. And what is social justice of what's going on today? Well, we just said it. Accepting or embracing whatever a person wants you to accept and embrace. That is the definition of social justice today. And that is being indoctrinated in the progressive church. There are liberal theologians who would view the church's acceptance of an atheist minister as an ultimate symbolic of the compassion and radical acceptance of Jesus. Did, did you hear that? They will accept an atheistic pastor as the radical symbol of Christ's acceptance of the sinner. What? Okay. Robin Myers, a well-known United Church of Christ pastor, is famous for calling himself unapologetically liberal. In his book, Saving Jesus from the Church, Myers argues that Jesus is not a savior, but a teacher. Christianity should not teach original sin, but original blessing, and the core of message of Jesus is ultimately one of social justice and compassion. This is the progressive church. I can only imagine this is because if, as Myers preaches, faith is about being and not about belief, then one need not to go to church, believe in God, or even identify as Christian in order to live the Christian life. It's just a social status symbol at this point. So, now for some common folks, or maybe folks that you might not know that are uh, either leaning or champions of progressive Christianity. And are, are we beginning to understand why this stuff is so dangerous? I mean, how it unbelievably leads folks astray? Well, let's go on to the first. Andy Stanley. <laughs> now, why is Andy Stanley progressive, and why should we avoid his teachings? Question. Yeah. Charles Stanley, is he related to him? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. So... What did Andy Stanley's church say about one of his sermons that he was preaching? Quote, If you were raised on a version of Christianity that relied on the Bible as the foundation of faith, a version that was eventually dismantled by academia or the realities of life, maybe it's time for you to change your mind about Jesus. Maybe it's time for you to consider the version of Christianity that relies on the event of the resurrection of Jesus as its foundation. If you gave up your faith because of something about or in the Bible, maybe you gave it up unnecessarily. So, how is this progressive? They are saying the scriptures don't matter. It's your experience, or your experience of the resurrection of Christ. In this series that Andy Stanley taught, he discredits what he labels a version of Christianity that relied on the Bible as the foundation of faith. So he appears to be arguing... He appears to be arguing 
um, in this sense that Christians should not hold to the Bible, but to the resurrection of Jesus. Any Christian leader who questions the reliability and usefulness of God's word is either terribly confused or a false teacher. Either way, such a teacher is a dangerous influence. A version of Christianity that does not rely on the Bible is not Christianity. Does that make sense on why Andy Stanley, on why Andy Stanley and this whole idea that the scriptures are not authoritative is a very dangerous topic, right? Because if the scriptures are not authoritative, what is the point? What, what is it that you're worshiping? What is it that is the, the mission of, or the message of salvation? It's whatever you want it to be, and it's your own personal experiences. Did you notice in the video that we watched how nothing was given in scripture of that? It was all her dreams, it was all the fellow people's dreams, her visions, even about a fictitious movie. And, and now it's to be applied to end racism in the world. Here's one that uh, is now recently leaning this way, and I tread on this one lightly because she is so unbelievably popular. She was very popular with the Southern Baptist Convention as well as Beth Moore. Now, Beth Moore was, in the past, a great teacher. What changed? Two words, Donald Trump, really. In 2016, um, she became pretty much a never-Trumper. Now, I'm not making a political statement or stand here, but that's what really drove her to see something that was upsetting her, and that was uh, Trump's treatment or perceived treatment of women and how people had always questioned her about simple things like being a woman pastor, right? So she had this idea in her mind of what the scriptures should say, and then she starts to slowly twist them. Well, let's listen. She tweeted, quote, let me be blunt. When you functionally treat complementarianism, a doctrine of man, man is all caps in her tweet, as if it belongs among the matters of first importance, yea, as a litmus test for where one stands on inerrancy and authority of scripture, you are the ones who have misused scripture you went too far. What is the idea or the doctrine of complementarianism? Well, the division between male and female is not a doctrine of man. That is not something that we made up, but a doctrine of God. It's the clear teaching of scripture that God created male and female separately and granted to each a different mandate. This includes the Apostle Paul's admonition that women should not teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If someone rejects God's created order, that is a very serious problem. And it has been reported many times that Beth Moore has preached in Sunday morning in the church in flagrant violation of the Apostle Paul's command. Am I saying that somehow a woman teacher is less or less qualified than a man? No, I'm not. I'm merely stating what God said in his word. There's a reason that he said that the women shouldn't hold authority or teach over men, right? After attacking the Apostle Paul, Moore then asked the public to forgive her for going along with the doctrine, as in the doctrine of complementarianism. She tweeted, I beg your forgiveness where I was complicit. I could not see it for what it was until 2016, the election of Donald Trump. 
I plead your forgiveness for how I just submitted to it and supported it and taught it. I trusted that the motives were godly. I have not lost my mind nor my doctrine, just my naivety. And dudes, do not direct message me. Spend your energy tending to your own house. See, complementarianism is a belief that God created men and women for different purposes and that they complement each other by staying true to these God-given gender roles. Yes, we do have gender roles. Men, do you honestly think you are equipped to not work outside the home and take care of everything that happens to run a home and raise children? You will lose your mind. <laughs> we are not designed that way. Trust me, right? My wife knows I am so laser focused, I can't do that. If I have a tool in my hand, she comes to talk to me, I'm like, honey, I have a tool in my hand. But there's, I have a tool in my hand, right? I cannot, I wasn't designed to do what she can do, right? Does that make her any less or me any less? No, just different. And praise God that we can complement each other in those roles so that our house just doesn't implode on itself. And it works. See, Mark 10, 6, Jesus taught the same thing. Quote, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Jesus believed that men and women were created with different roles. And they complemented each other. So we see here that she is beginning to place doubt on scripture in areas that rub her personally the wrong way. So she's using her views to interpret scripture and say, I must be wrong at this point because I'm so successful at it. Now here's one that is also extremely, extremely popular. But anyone a Joyce Meyer fan? No? Okay. This will be maybe for those that are listening online. But I want to give you ideas of the popularity of these folks and where they start to completely go off the rails. So what are some Joyce Meyer teachings? Number one, that are absolutely heretical. I'm going to call it for what it is. It is pure heresy, and it's completely anti-scripture. Number one that she teaches, Jesus stopped being the son of God. Right. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of surprise in, in the room this morning. Quote, what did she say? He could have held himself up until the point where he said, I commend my spirit into your hands. At that point, he couldn't do nothing for himself anymore. He had become sin. He was no longer the son of God. He was sin. Direct quote from Joyce Meyer. Anyone see a problem with that? Right? Well, this is heresy. Jesus did not ever stop becoming the son of God. Essentially what she is saying is that Jesus stopped being divine, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity. So this is an attack on the very nature of Christ, and it's a dangerous, very dangerous false teaching. Joyce Meyer needs to repent and retract this statement. There's no place in scripture that says Jesus stopped being the son of God, and she's adding to the word of God and placing in the hearts and minds of listeners a false doctrine. Number two that she teaches, Jesus himself was born again. Right? Quote, the minute that blood sacrifice was accepted, Jesus was the first human being that was ever born again. This is horrible. This is just plain wrong. Being born again means to be saved from the wrath of God or a person's sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. To have a new birth, John 3, 3. And to be regenerated, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 
So Mrs. Meyer is simply wrong biblically. Why does she teach this? It can only be because she has brought, bought into many of the errors of the positive confession movement. Name and claim it, blab it and grab it, that kind of deal. Where many say that Jesus lost his divine nature, he went to hell and he finished the atonement in hell and was born again. These are absolutely serious, serious errors. Three, Jesus paid for our sins in hell. Quote, he became our sacrifice and died on the cross. He did not stay dead. He was in the grave three days. During that time, he entered hell, where you and I deserve to go legally because of our sin. He paid the price there. This was in a book called The Most Important Decision You'll Ever Make. This was May of 1993, printing the second printing, page 35. This is blatantly wrong, period. Jesus did not pay the price of our redemption in hell. He paid it where? On the cross. Thank you. It was finished on the cross when he said, It is finished. John 19.30. Also consider the following other verses. Uh, Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Colossians 2.14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. The fourth thing, uh, like I said, I'm only bringing not all of Joyce Meyer's stuff, but some of the ones that are just very, very dangerous. That Jesus went to hell in our place and was tormented. Quote, she says, Jesus paid on the cross and went to hell in my place. Then as God had promised, on the third day Jesus rose from the dead. The scene in the spirit realm went something like this. God rose up from his throne and said to demon powers, tormenting the sinless son of God, let him go. Then the resurrection power of almighty God went through hell and filled Jesus. On earth, his grave, where they had buried him, was filled with light as the power of God filled his body. He was resurrected from the dead, the firstborn again man. Whoa. This is That's a right. whole lot of inference. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the point. Where does she get this entirely fictitious dialogue between God and the demon powers? Where? Since when do the demons have power to torment and hell? Right. Hell is made for them. It is made up, is not found anywhere in scripture. And it mistakenly assumes that Jesus went to hell, the place of torment and suffering after he died on the cross. See, the Bible does not teach any such thing. However, it does say that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth in Ephesians 4.9. This can mean that Jesus was physically buried or that Jesus went to Hades to inform those who had already died about who he was and what he did on the cross, or it can be referring to his incarnation and is contrasted with his ascension into heaven in Ephesians 4.10. But there's simply no reasons to believe that Jesus suffered in hell and finished the atonement there. This is completely false. So what's the overarching theme? See, it's these folks that have completely abandoned the authority of Scripture. They're using their own experiences, they're using their own uh, visions, and who are you to tell them that they are wrong? Right? That's the modern culture. That's the progressive culture coming into the church saying that it's now experiences over authority that hold the weight. 
Uh, the next one that Joyce Myers had said, if you don't believe Jesus went to hell, then you cannot be saved. <laughs> Quote, his spirit went to hell because that is where we deserve to go. There is no hope of anyone going to heaven unless they believe this truth. I'm sorry. I thought the gospel was the death, burial, resurrection, the repentance of sins. That is what enables someone to enter into the kingdom of heaven, not believing that Christ went to hell. See, this is an amazingly bad statement on her part. She's saying that you can't be saved from your sins unless you believe that Jesus went to hell where we deserve to go. It's a false modification of the gospel, which is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. It states that the gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Nowhere in scripture are we told to believe that Jesus suffered for us in hell or that he went there. It's heretical and it's completely wrong. Oh, this one's increasingly popular, not just from Joyce Meyer, and I bring it up because it's pervasive through Bethel Reading. As you guys heard, uh, when he said, you are, we are standing together, you are all kings and priests. Did you guys hear that line? Okay. We are all little gods, little g gods. This is extremely pervasive. It may sound just completely off the wall to us, but listen, quote what Joyce Meyer said. I was listening to a set of tapes by one man. He explained it like this. This kind of gets the point across. He said, why do people have such a fit about God calling his creation his creation, his man, not his whole creation, but his man, little gods. If he's God, what's he going to call them but the God kind? I mean, if you as a human being have a baby, you call it a human kind. If it, cattle, has another cattle, they call it cattle kind. I mean, what is God supposed to call him? Doesn't the Bible say that we are created in his image? Now, you understand I'm not saying that we are God with a capital G. That is not the issue here. So don't go trying to stone me or yell blasphemy at me. The Bible says right here in John 10, 34, and Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law that I say that we are gods? So men are called gods by the law. Now this is an extreme perversion, right? In this clip, she goes on to quote John 10, 34, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, You are gods, little g, which is a quote from Psalm 82, 6 which is an imprecatory psalm of condemnation for the unrighteous judges. That's what the word meant in that context. It meant judge. Psalm 82.7 says, Nevertheless, you will die like men. Ruh -ruh. Kind of throws out that whole little g-god idea, right? She then turned to Psalm 82 and went through it. And the video stopped. So I don't know what she would have said about the next all-important verse, that you will die like men. She conveniently left that part out. Right? It happened to me once before. In college, I was having a debate with a guy. When folks start to get indoctrinated with this, which person of the Trinity is the first to go? Christ. It's always Christ. It's always the deity of Christ that they start to give up. Okay? And he, he was uh, championing that Christ was no longer divine, but just the Son of God. We were in uh, the Gospel of John. If you remember where, you know, he's, he's pointing to the passage where Jesus is saying, the Father is greater than all, greater than me. You know, no one can pluck them out of my hand what the Father has given to me. He said, see, there you go. Jesus himself admits that the Father is greater to him. I'm like, that's awesome. Nate, read the very next verse. I and my Father are one. See, it's rather convenient that they leave out, what? The authority of Scripture. See, Joyce Meyer also said, she is not a sinner. Uh. This is not a new doctrine, folks. This actually is very, very old. 
She says, quote, I am not poor, I am not miserable, and I am not a sinner. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is what I were, and if I still was then, Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that's heresy, and they want to hang you for it. But the Bible says that I am righteous, and I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time. Oh, that's unfortunate. See, at this point, Mrs. Meyer needs a, a very introductory lesson on biblical theology, particularly 1 John 1.8 where it says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Has, has anyone gone this week without a sin? Anyone? No? Okay. <laughs> I think we're sitting in our heart. <laughs> For those listening online, my son said, I think we're sitting in our heart against Joyce Meyer right now. <laughs> See, John the Apostle says we, he includes himself with the sinners. That's an important point. Also, Paul said in Romans 7, for the, you guys remember this, for the good that I wish I do not, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I'm going to do the very thing I do not wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Is Joyce Meyer a better Christian character than John or the Apostle Paul? I highly doubt it. Mrs. Myers fails to recognize her own sinfulness, and so mistakenly denies her own sinfulness. I can only conclude that this false teaching comes from pride because it certainly isn't biblical anywhere. So what's the dangers of this? My wife always likes to remind me. So what's the application? What is the dangers of this? If you believe you can be sinless, and when, not if, you do sin, one or two things is going to happen. You're going to be so self condemning that you're going to live a life in absolute misery. Not a life understood by the doctrine of grace of Christ forgiving your sins on the cross. You will be tormented. You'll be going through hell, just like Martin Luther did before he discovered grace. Do you guys realize that Luther was in confession sometimes 9 to 10 hours a day every day? He was absolutely tormented from his sin. I, I get it. Martin Luther was crazy. He farted at the devil. Yes, I understand that. <laughs> However, the point being, Luther was tormented by his sin until he read that fateful verse in Romans. For by grace you have been saved through faith alone. Period. Nothing else. So what's the other option? So if, not if, but when you do sin, if you're not tormented by it, what's the other option? You're going to say, well, this Christianity is just a crock, man. This doesn't mean anything. I'm still sinning. I thought I wasn't supposed to sin anymore. I'm righteous like Joyce Myers had told me. I am. Yeah, a lot here. of people that hold to that sinless perfection thing, they just say, well, I didn't mean it. Didn't mean so what here? I didn't mean to sin, so therefore it's not sin. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I mean, there's... <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're not even going to go on that one. <laughs> so, Joyce Meyer gets revelation knowledge as well. Quote, The Bible can't even find any way to explain this. Not really. That is why you have to go and get it by revelation. There are no words to explain what I am telling you. I have got to, tr I have got to trust God that he is putting it into your spirit like he put it into mine. Well, isn't that convenient? <laughs> I, I mean, how does that not sound just blatantly cultish? 
you guys can't find any proof for what I'm saying, but it's gonna be it's gonna be indwelled in you. Just trust me on that. What's she saying? She's saying that the words that, I'm, that are words that are coming out of my mouth, these heretical teachings. I know you're not gonna find it in scripture. I know you might find scripture that even disagrees with it, but you gotta trust that what I'm saying is coming to you from God because He gave it to me. You just have to trust the process. Is what she's saying. So you're not going to find it in the word. No. Because the word can't even come up with a way to say what I'm saying. Right. And but you, but you just got to trust it. Got to trust it. Yeah. You got to trust it because God put it in me, and I'm trusting that God is going to open up your mind, just as He did mine. Um, and and then it's just going to be revealed, and, and we'll all be hunky dory. It's kind, of like, kind of like Islam rewriting things or having new revelations all the time, or the Mormons having new revelations whenever they need a new thing to happen. It's, it's really follows all of that. You know, that oh yeah, it, it, it absolutely does. And it just, I mean, I've been harping on this for two weeks now, and it just comes down from the breakdown of the authority and infallibility of Scripture. When they don't hold Scripture as the final authority, but then they themselves as the final authority, it, it's unbelievably convenient, because you can't call anything that they're saying wrong. Because it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Just like she literally just said, I get this special revelation from God, so you can't argue with that. Authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Right. So revelation, knowledge? What? Is she on par with the apostles who received revelation knowledge from God himself? Or how about the Old Testament prophets? Does she, like them, also receive revelation knowledge from God? If so, how would we know if it were true or not? The answer is simple. We test what she says against Scripture, and it's obvious that she's getting a lot of things from somewhere else that contradict the Word of God. So, what's coming out of her mouth can't be true, right? So, now, um, let's see. Joel Osteen. Do we really need to go over Joel Osteen? Not, probably not in depth. I mean, it, it's pretty obvious, but it, for those that are, that are listening online, Joel Osteen falls under the prosperity gospel. And what do I mean by prosperity gospel? Prosperity gospel is this idea that a life of service to Christ is a, is a life of what it says, prosperity. You'll be, you won't get sick anymore. Um, you'll be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. You'll have some trophy wife. You know, you too can have a $10.4 million home in Dallas, Texas, as Joel Osteen and his wife do. 17,000 square feet at home. So, all to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. <laughs> However, to be fair, Joel Osteen has denied, he, he, he champions this, he is no longer taking a um, salary of $200,000 a year from his church because he doesn't need it. And all that he does is it, it, just for ministry. Okay. How much money was just found hidden in the walls? 600000 $600,000. Yeah, and the money that was found, if you guys haven't heard of that story, that was found in the uh, wall of the bathroom, $600,000 of cash by a plumber that was redoing the bathroom in the church. Oops. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, you're my financial advisor. <laughs> I buy a $10 million house on $200,000 a year. Yeah, exactly. So those listening online, Mike said, um, my career is I am a financial advisor. Can you explain to me how you can afford a ten and a half million dollar house on two hundred thousand dollars per year? Swiss banks. <laughs> Swiss banks. 
you can't. Uh, <laughs> you absolutely can't. There's something amok with that. So, book sales. Book sales. It is. It's about 14, a little over 14 million dollars a year um, that he and his wife rack in between book sales and speaking engagements. Yep. So, just how dangerous is progressive Christianity? So, listen to this. On a sermon on the Gospel of Mark, we read this from a progressive teacher. Quote, Fortunately for us, there is more to our anonymous storyteller's gospel than there is to the story of the average comic strip superhero. You see, unlike the average superhero, Jesus is all too human. In today's story, Jesus is a flesh and blood down-to-earth, fallible, short-tempered, and sometimes narrow-minded human being, very much like the rest of us. In this story, Jesus' humanity is revealed. Who said this? So this is found on progressivechristianity.org. It is the homepage for their movement. Oh yeah, they refer to the Gospel of Mark as the anonymous storyteller's gospel whom we call Mark. Because, why? They hold no authority of scripture. We can't know anything about it or what's being taught in it. So with that, everything is completely open to interpretation as, as you will it. I know that this may sound just completely off the lunatic fringe, but it doesn't start that way, folks. See, Beth Moore was a solid, solid teacher for many, many years. And something got under her skin that she didn't like, and because of her lessened view of scripture, she is now conforming her message to what she didn't like rather than having her message be conformed to what scripture clearly teaches. I know you're like, it, Sean, it's not that big of an issue. It's just you know, whether or not a woman should be uh, teaching or, or holding authority over a man. I understand that. We're not talking about a salvation issue, but we are talking about the inerrancy and, and the sufficiency of Scripture. And once one point goes on that, it's like a domino effect. Then you have buffet Christianity. And then you can pick and choose whatever you want to believe and whatever tends to offend you at that point. Yeah. Like... They said here on progressivechristianity.org, you know, Jesus is a fallible, short-tempered, and narrow-minded human being. How? The creator of men. I know. How could you possibly describe the creator of heaven and earth as that? That doesn't make any sense. That absolutely doesn't make any sense. But the thing is that they didn't begin thinking this way. They didn't begin automatically saying, you know, Christ is a fallible, short-tempered little man like I am. That's not where it started. It started with, yea, hath God said? Did God's word really say that? Did he really mean that? Or do we need to start interpreting scripture in the light of culture? Yeah. Do they then, do you think, uh, bring in a universalist church that has yep. all of these things into their fold? Like, do they recognize they're equal to the universalist? And it's not a church, but the universalist right. movement? Yep. Yeah, and the, and the whole idea that, you know, then it's, it just completely goes off into pantheism, right? You know, that we are gods, and God is in us, and whatever. Yep, and it just goes completely off the rails at, at that point. But like Margaret said, it's happening in our own community, right here, in Lewis County, Washington. We have this stuff being taught. NAR is big here. NAR, um, like my bride brought up, is um, New Apostolic Reformation. 
what we just heard. Remember? They said, by the apostolic creed, we declare that racism is dead. And I'll staff. They're saying that they have the same authority as the ones that wrote our scriptures. That they are new apostles today. Yep. With the same authority. That whatever comes out of their mouth is, you know, ex cathedra. It's, it's completely the gospel. It's the word of God itself. I, I mean, how unbelievably dangerous is that? That anyone at any time can proclaim, thus saith the Lord, and you have to believe them? I mean, that's insanity, folks. It's absolute insanity. And when people do that, a good indicator say, show me in the scriptures where it says that. Because we've had people say, well, I had a vision. God gave me a vision for you. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. Well, in the same Holy Spirit that abides and lives in you, abides and lives in me, it's not a different spirit for each of us. He's not going to tell us different things. Have them show you in scriptures where it can say this. Except the problem is that they don't hold the same view of scripture right, as we do. Right. See, we're, we're appealing to scripture because we know that that is the final and ultimate authority. If it's in there, then by golly, I have to believe it. I, I have to change my views. But they're saying, well, it doesn't matter because we don't even know who wrote Mark. We, we call it the, uh, what they say, the anonymous storyteller's gospel, whom we call Mark. They called the gospel, a, a, number one, a story, the anonymous storyteller's gospel, because they have no foundation of the authority of scripture. So then where, where do we begin? How can we even, and this is like trying to ice skate uphill, right? Is what this feels like. Where do we even begin to try and combat, or perhaps maybe bring some of these folks back into the fold? <laughs> I know, I, I feel Bonnie's frustration. She's saying, I don't know. I don't know. You know it's, it's, a, it's a slippery, slippery hill at this point. So where do we begin? Well, it has to begin with us, right? Us and those that are under us, meaning our children and grandchildren. So if we are rooted in the solid foundational truths of Scripture, right, and what the doctrines of God actually are, and we teach those to you know, the generation below us, and then so on, and it keeps going, I think we stand a pretty good chance. Uh, of combating something like this. And we also stand a pretty good chance that when we meet somebody that is engulfed in this or has possibly maybe come out of this, we have the answers on, on why this is wrong and how this is such dangerous, dangerous thinking, right? So I'll close with this. And the point of this story is, is to point out um, when you can show somebody where their train of thought is going to go, and then you can show how dangerous their train of thought inevitably will be, I think there's a good chance. So this was a, quite a few years ago, Pastor Ben and I were having lunch at, um, what's this, what's the name of that sushi place in Central Gigi's? Yeah. Gigi's. Yeah. Gigi's. Um, we were having lunch there. This was in the day when legalized same-sex marriage was on the docket for Washington State. I'm at lunch with my pastor. What do you think I do before we do, before we pray? Well, so we didn't break tradition, and we, we prayed before our meal. And there was some fellow there, um, no doubt, probably either asympathetic to homosexuals or one himself, and wanted to come up and saw that we prayed, i.e. we're Christians or someone of faith, and since this hot topic of legalized same-sex marriage was on the docket of Washington, wanted to pick an intellectual fight about how this was completely unfair, and it was a, a violation of human rights, to not to allow him 
to marry another man. Well, during this lunch, um, I had the opportunity to say, whoa, let's, I mean, let's get religion out of this and let's just talk about equal rights. So me, as a heterosexual, um, free American male and living legal citizen in the United States of America, the legal right to marry a woman over the age of 18, who isn't married already, whom I'm not related to, and who isn't dead. You, as a gay American legal citizen in the United States of America, have the legal right to marry a woman over the age of 18, who isn't married already, whom you're not related to, and who isn't dead. This has nothing to do with a violation of equal rights. We have the exact same number of rights. You're wanting to add one. You're wanting to redefine the terms of marriage on what you define as love. And that can go horrifically wrong in the future. And it is, in California. I told him, it will soon be defined as pedophilia. Who are you to deny that a 68-year-old man can marry a 10-year-old girl because he defines that as love? You're wanting to define marriage as equal to love. It's happening in California right now. They're trying to legalize it. They don't call it pedophilia anymore. There's a new acronym, MAP, Minor Attractive Person, to make it sound less horrific, I suppose. See, my point is, if you can show somebody where their ideas are naturally going to progress, or where they have already progressed, maybe there's a shot, right? But if anything, this is meant for us as Christians, as believers, by golly, dig into the Word. Become those Bereans and study Study your scriptures and teach it to, your, to those that are placed in charge under you, your children and your grandchildren, so that they can have this, this solid, solid system for when, not if, but when they are encountered by these things. And they're not going to be swayed because they know this is not the truth. See, like I said, I can only teach you to recognize these things when they sneak up. I can't just name all of them. I don't have that much time <laughs> to know who, who all falls into this category. But um, if you guys missed it last week, you can hear those, those five tenets or those five warning signs of progressive Christianity. And then you can, you know, if you pick up on any of those, then you can start to have that conversation with, you know, someone whom you love or someone you're uh, perhaps discipling or ministering to. Um, any questions? If they want a list or a more extensive list, Oh, yeah. Yeah, like my son brought up, uh, I forgot too. Uh, if you want a more extensive list, you can look up a fellow by the name of Justin Peters on YouTube. And it was on the American Gospel, if you guys haven't seen that movie and those listening online. Um, I know it's on Amazon, some of it's on Netflix, right? I don't know anymore. But yeah, the American Gospel. It's two parts. Awesome. Awesome documentary. Yeah. Just to clarify, we don't want people to necessarily shy away from Charles Stanley, right? No, 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 no. Dr. Stanley is still solid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing went wrong there. His son, however, and Andy Stanley, um, is going uh, off the rails with, with progressive Christianity. Uh, I haven't heard anything in a long time from Franklin Graham, so I'm not going to answer yet. I'd be answering out of ignorance. Yeah, I mean... Uh, but that's ultimately, yeah, you know, I, not, not yeah. really a biblical issue, but, you know. But it gave me a different perspective. Yeah, sure. It, it does. Um, and, I mean, if you guys know my history and background, 
you know, I went to California Baptist University, you know, down in Riverside, California, part of the Southern Baptist Convention, who has recently completely affirmed critical race theory, that it is a good thing and it should be taught in the churches. This is the most divisive thing, I think, literally, since the, the civil rights movement that I have seen since then it is unbelievably divisive. And for the Southern Baptist Convention to embrace it, like, what are you guys thinking? That's crazy. Um, any other questions or comments before we close? We're not going to be here for two weeks. Right. So. Did, you, did you get subs, Margaret? Because we won't be here for the sixth. One yeah. Yes, you're right. Yep, yes. the six. For me at Bible study. Michael, you're, you're doing it next week? Sweet. Okay. <laughs> right. One week for Sunday school. Alrighty. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, again, we just praise you. Um, we thank you for your revealed truth, Lord. And we just ask that we can be effective. As, you know, Pastor Ben taught this morning, that we can be that salt and that light. Um, that we won't be offensive, we won't be the light shining in somebody's eyes, you know, as, but we will be something that they would seek after and that we can be a beacon that would lead them to you. And in Christ's name I pray, amen.